An investor's investor. Here. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have as our guest Bethany McLean, one of the world's finest financial journalists. Bethany is currently contributing editor for Vanity Fair and formerly was with Fortune and Slate. She is generally credited as the first person to expose weaknesses at Enron before it went bankrupt. She then co-wrote the book, The Smartest Guys in the Room, which became an Oscar-nominated documentary about that gigantic fraud. She also co-wrote All the Devils Are Here about the financial crisis, hosts the absolutely wonderful podcast, Capital Isn't, and is at work on a new book about how COVID has changed the economy. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So welcome, Bethany. Thank you for having me on. So let's just start at the beginning. What's your origin story? We found that interesting people often have had interesting lives. How did you become the person you are both personally and professionally? Well, I'm not sure I've had such an interesting life, but I was born and actually, I was born in California on a naval base in China Lake, oddly enough. So I guess in some ways, I'm a California girl at heart, maybe. My father was a doctor in the Navy, and we ended up living in northern Minnesota, a small town way up near the Canadian border called Hibbing, which is where Bob Dylan is from, for those of you who have actually heard of Hibbing, Minnesota. And I lived there through high school. And after high school, I, I went to college on the East Coast, a small school called Williams, and I ended up going to work from there in an in investment bank. So I guess maybe that makes me somewhat interesting or at least different in that I don't think there are many kids from Hibbing, Minnesota, who end up working in investment banking in, in, in New York. And after a few years there, I decided that I'd always wanted to be a journalist. So I, I left and went to work at Fortune Magazine as a fact checker. Back in those days, the glossy magazines all had fact-checking departments so you could get hired without any journalism background and I, I had no journalism background and you could get in the door by being able willing and able to check facts and other people's stories so that was my start in journalism so did you listen to much Dylan growing up I did not listen to any Dylan growing up Hibbing at that point was not particularly proud of its native son. In fact, I think he, he was a bit of a controversial character in town. It's always fascinated me. There's this story about Dylan that when he performed in high school, people threw things at him on the stage because they thought he was so terrible. And it actually speaks to the vagaries of, of memory because once Hibbing started to look to capitalize on Bob Dylan's fame, they did an exhibit on, on, on him and they had a board posted where you could recount your memories of this episode. 
And people said everything from, I was there. It was so horrible. I can't believe we did this to the, to Bob Dylan to, I was there and this never happened. We would never have treated anybody like that. And so for, for me, it became this, as I said, fascinating, uh, example of the bakeries of memory, even that people who claim they were there have different memories about what it is that actually happened. But no, Hibbing was a heavy metal town. I grew up in Northern Minnesota in the 1980s and my father was a huge classical music, music fan. I don't think my exposure to music went much beyond classical music and headbanging metal. One of the first things you did after being a fact checker, or maybe while being a fact checker at Fortune, was you wrote a, a column about stocks to watch. And, you know, this was the classic, a CEO saying his company nowadays, the crypto phrase is to the mood, but back then was, you know, he was going to, to do well or double or whatever. Or, or an analyst saying some pet company was going to double. And I've heard you say that you were soon disabused of that notion because you duly wrote up these stories and then you found a negative correlation. They would fall off a cliff. Now, having read your work over the years, I know it's not quite that simple or absolute correlation. Your reporting is actually quite nuanced. So let me ask you about being a reporter, being on the spectrum between being credulous and being cynical. How do you find the sweet spot between not believing the hype, but not becoming a cynic? It's a really interesting question. Something I've thought about a lot because I think I do naturally tend to be contrarian. And while that can be a very good thing because you're willing to say zag when the rest of the world is zigging and you're willing to look at things in a way that is different than everybody else is looking at it. That can also become a default, right? Where just because everybody thinks something, you decide you you decide on some subconscious level that you're going to think the opposite. In which case, you're still not really thinking, right? It's just as bad as being credulous because you're just following a default mechanism. And so I've thought about that in myself. How do I make sure that my contrarian streak is put to good use rather than becoming uh, contrarian simply for the sake of of being contrarian? Slightly different version than than cynicism, or a slightly different issue than cynicism. But, but a related one, right? And so I think I think one thing that does generally save me, I, I went back to Williams once and gave a presentation on how math made me a better journalist. And I actually do think that doing a lot of math proofs in your life provides an analytical framework that you can never quite shake. In other words, if A doesn't lead to B, doesn't leave to C, you're kind of going to know it doesn't. You're not going to be able to pretend to yourself that A is leading to D and kind of skip over the steps in between uh, because you can't skip over any steps in a math proof, right? And, and so I think that very analytical framework actually saves me. Maybe to a fault, I once said to someone we were talking and I said, yeah, I was, I was a math major, but I've learned how to write. And I don't, I don't think you can tell anymore. And he was like, oh my God, you can totally tell the major. So I might be giving myself too much credit on the writing front, but I do think that that analytical framework, I can't really lie to myself um, about whether or not, and, and that doesn't mean I get it right, but it does mean that it has to make sense to me. The facts have to make sense to me and have to have some sort of rationality and logic to them. And if they don't, I know. And so that may lead me to become more of a believer in something than I thought I would be. And it may lead me to be more skeptical about something than I initially set out to be. So one example of that, I, a piece I did for Vanity Fair years ago, maybe 2013, 2014, was on Microsoft. And I had started working on it because somebody had said to me that Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer were no longer speaking to each other. And so that was going to be the gist for a story about Microsoft, how Microsoft was done, how this once iconic, all-powerful company was possibly going to go 
bankrupt. It was over. And as I got to know the Microsoft story better and came to understand and got to know eventually Sachin Adela, the new CEO, a little bit, I thought this isn't what's going to happen. Microsoft actually has a new lease on life. So I ended up writing a, a story that I think the story itself might have been wor the worst for thinking in it because the story itself was Yes, there's this horrible feud between Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. The company was a mess, but it actually might be it, it might be about to save itself thanks to Sachin Adela. And it would have been a much more coherent story it had been, and it's all going to hell. But I couldn't write that story because that wasn't what I thought. It, it strikes me that that what you're describing for investors is a little bit like the difference between good due diligence and bad due diligence, where bad due diligence just goes through the question list and good due diligence sees how it all hangs together and where it leads. Do, do you think there's an analogy between a math proof and how investors, good investors start researching companies and doing diligence? Well, is there an analogy or is it just that a math proof is one tool for getting where you need to go? You need to find something that makes you be intellectually honest with yourself. You need to find something that makes you say, I do understand this. I don't understand this. And it depends on what that thing is for you. And I, maybe it can be something different than does this logically and analytically hang together. That's my approach because that's what I know and that's the way my brain works. Could it be something else for, for somebody else? Probably. But I do think anybody, whether they're an investor or a journalist or in any line of work, you need something that forces you to see whether the argument you're putting together, the line of thinking you're putting together hangs together, whether there are internal inconsistencies that you need to pull out and examine more closely. And whatever that method is, that process is, I don't think it much matters. There just needs to be one. So you mentioned Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer and Sachin Ardella. You've also, in the last couple of years at Vanity Fair, written about Elon Musk and Stevie Cohen. Do you have any general thoughts about the role of outsized personalities in business. They seem, at least from the outside, in the vernacular of Silicon Valley, to be comfortable breaking things. They don't have a lot of regards for the rules. And sometimes that rules aren't enforced around them, to be fair. And on the one hand, that's great when they're breaking a stale business model, but they also seem sometimes to skate close to the edge on obeying laws and common decency. Do you think that characteristic, is my summary accurate? And what's your view? on the pluses and minuses of such big personalities and superstars in business. So I think your summary is accurate, and I would love to believe that you could have one without the other. In other words, I would love to believe that you could have the big personality who rewrites the rules of an industry and reshapes the world in a way that's good for everybody. And what gets broken is the stuff that should get broken because something better is coming to take its place. And it's, it's all positive and you don't get the negatives too. I'm not sure the world works that way. I think in order for the first character to exist, there has to, the second character has to exist too. There has, there have to be the people who will go across the line and will carelessly break things. I don't know why I'm thinking of that great line from The Great Gatsby about they were the sort of people who carelessly broke things. That's not quite right, but, but, I, but I'm thinking about that. We've got a lot of those out there today. So I'm not sure that an environment that permits the one can exist without some degree of the person who goes too far. I do think the role of big characters in business Maybe thus it was ever so, but I think it has definitely become more extreme in our personality-driven times. 
And it's not just a thing that gets this person attention. It really is a competitive advantage. I mean, think about the difference between Jeff Bezos's Amazon and Walmart. Because Jeff Bezos is able to be this outsized character, he got investors to believe in him and to believe in his vision and permit his company to lose boatloads of money for a really long time. And that enabled Amazon to become what it is today. Walmart, on the other hand, had to meet quarterly earnings expectations. And they had far less flexibility to fling money into new investments and try new things. And so that ability to get people to believe in you is a huge competitive advantage. Or look at Elon Musk and Tesla. If wherever Tesla is today, if it hadn't been for Musk's outside personality, Tesla would not have gotten through the, the, the dark years. But his personality, his ability to get people to believe in him became a competitive advantage that then does change the course of history. You know, I do think we all want, and particularly investors who back these companies, want there to be a very simple rule. Oh, look, this bad boy who did sexist, awful things and uh, disregarded all the rules of propriety, he was huge success. So therefore, we're going to look for more of those people because they're all going to be huge successes, right? There's a causality that people start to impute to these things that I would like to believe is not necessarily the case. I mean, maybe Mark Zuckerberg was a huge success with Facebook, not because he was such an ass, but despite the fact that he was such an ass. And so maybe another person who's a total ass, maybe they shouldn't get credit for being the next Mark Zuckerberg. But the the, the simplistic level that in, in which people want to think never fails to amaze me. Do you think that projection of personality trait equals business success also played a role in Theranos in terms of investors looking at her and saying, oh, and obviously she modeled herself after Steve Jobs, but, um, you know, this is the character traits we've been looking for. And so we're not going to do deep due diligence. I, I absolutely think so. I mean, stepping back to say a young woman with no medical training and no engineering training could solve a question, an issue that people had been working for decades to try to solve, which was how to make blood tests more efficient and run on a smaller amount of blood. It's insane, right? It's insane. It would be a miracle if that could happen. But in the environment in which we were in, it not only was not insane, it was, well, of course, because people with no training and no background in this who are young are so much smarter than an old person who's actually done this for decades that not only is this not implausible, her way of being actually makes this more likely. This is the character profile we're looking for. I think there's another element too, which is that people are just so afraid of missing out on the next big thing. And so that plays into the first one, that they are willing to not ask the questions they should ask for fear that they'll then be kicked out of the club. I've said this before, but I've had very little sympathy for the investors in Theranos. And I'm very surprised that the jury found Elizabeth Holmes guilty of defrauding investors because in my view, any investor who invested in that company without getting audited financial statements, you deserve to lose your money. What were you thinking? In addition to your books about Enron and the financial crisis, you also wrote an interesting little book called Saudi America about fracking. And I should note that it's about the economics of the industry, not the environmental issues. So we're not going to go there. But one interesting conclusion that's timely now is that you said that the easy money policy of the Fed post the global financial crisis 
made capital-intensive industries like fracking possible because they didn't have a Jeff Bezos who would lend them lots of money forever, but the Fed was in effect doing that or making the environment more suitable for that. So let's jump off from there. Now, as we're recording this, the Fed yesterday said they were going to start hiking rates probably in March. This is the end of January, 2022. Now that the area of easing liquidity seems to be a deal, what do you think the implications will be? Not so much for fracking, but for the economy as a whole. How is it going to change? It's a really interesting question because when you do look back to the era of easy money that was triggered by the global financial crisis and the Fed's response to it, wow, did it change the world? Hey, we would definitely not have had the explosion of fracking companies we did if it weren't for their ability to just raise almost infinite amounts of cheap capital. And the same thing goes for the Fed's response to the pandemic. Had the Fed not responded in the way that it did, a lot of oil and gas companies would have gone bankrupt. But because the Fed responded in the way it did and made a ton more cheap capital easily available. All these companies have gotten a reprieve and they're still in business. So can the Fed get out of this? I, I don't take your point as a given. The Fed has talked before in the decade between the financial crisis and the pandemic, loosely decade, I can still do enough math to say it was more than a decade, <laughs> 12 years, but in, in, in the decade in the decade plus between um, those two events, the Fed said several times they were going to taper and started raising interest interest rates and the market through a Fed and the Fed eventually um, backed off it in order to placate the market. And so to me, it remains to be seen how much of a temper the market will throw and whether that's going to affect the Fed's decisions and ability to, to raise interest rates. Of course, we have inflation now in a way that we didn't have in the years before the pandemic. So there's a real reason for the Fed to have to raise interest rates and stop its easy money policies. There's a debate whether that inflation is transitory or whether it's here to stay, whether the Fed is already so far behind the curve that it's not going to matter. But if the inflation is transitory, I think we'll see a return to the same easy money policies that we've had for a long time because the Fed simply won't want to be responsible for cratering the stock market. The stock market is like a little two-year-old that throws a temper tantrum as soon as the Fed starts to with, withdraw the proverbial punch bowl. There's another element here that I think is also interesting. Um, in the Fed, has this much vaunted independence, right? The central bank is supposed to be independent, but yet the United States is heavily, heavily indebted since the pandemic. If the Fed is, particularly since the pandemic, we were even beforehand, if the Fed is no longer buying up a supply of treasury bills and if interest rates are rising, that's gonna make it harder for the US government to finance itself. And so can the Fed maintain its independence in the face of what is going to be a very fraught relationship with the treasury? I think that's another question going forward. If the Fed, if liquidity is withdrawn by the Fed, as they have said they will, whether they do or not, we'll accept your answer, but as, as a premise, they do. What does that do? How does that change the economy? I think it changes it pretty dramatically. We A lot of people have gotten used to a time where interest rates only go down and where capital is essentially free. If that changes, if we go back to mortgage rates in the 9 10%, if capital is no longer free, I think it changes everything. But I've never lived through that time, right? I was born in 1970. And so essentially, by the time I was old enough to realize what was going on around me, interest rates were falling and they've continued to fall. But you, you have an enormous number of traders in the market who have never lived, think they're geniuses, and have never lived through a period where interest rates are rising and where they actually have to pick stocks because they've grown up in a world where stocks only go up because the Fed is 
only making capital available. And I think it's going to be really interesting, but I think it's going to be an entirely different world. Don't you? Yeah. I'm a little older than you. And what you've said is scary that basically everyone who's sitting with a Bloomberg terminal and trading has never <laughs> lived through this sort of environment and doesn't know how to react. And that's probably a scarier knock-on effect than anything else. And that's frightening. And even more so, there are, you know, these people running billions of dollars worth of assets who were barely around during the financial crisis. And they really, really think they're brilliant and they're entitled to be running billions of dollars because the stocks they bought during the last decade went up. I mean, I do a lot of work around governance issues. And one of the things I always say about resiliency is that you don't have to actually do much in a stable, favorable environment. But if you haven't tested your assumptions, success breeds failure because you think you have been brilliant. I will agree with you, but this is about interviewing you, not me. So I'm going to move a little bit here and I'm going to be greedy because I've asked you one question about peeking into the crystal ball. So I'm going to ask for another, which also is a sneak peek at your new book. You're writing a book about the effect of COVID on the economy. What do you think some of the permanent changes will be? We hear lots of speculation about everything from hybrid work environments. Now people are against hybrid work environments, work from home, commuting, central business districts, et cetera. What what do you think some of the permanent changes will be? I, I don't know. And I don't mean to duck out of this question, but one of the lovely things about being a journalist is that I don't really have to have a crystal ball. I usually try to explain things that have happened rather than trying to predict what what would happen. And I thought about this a lot when I wrote Saudi America, because I realized one thing everybody who had tried to predict the future of the oil markets had in common, which it was that they were mostly wrong. And I feel like that way about most predictions. And if you think back, if you think about where we are now versus where all the experts said we were going to be, Oh my God. I mean, who would have guessed that you would have people leaving the workforce because they felt so flush that they could afford to sit back and not work, that we would have low unemployment, that we would have a market that at least until the Fed started raising rates was at all time highs. But you would never have believed that this would have been what would have happened post a pandemic that we haven't seen since 1918 and over a century. I mean, it's insane, right? So I'm very leery of making predictions about what the world is going to be like in a year. I have been somewhat skeptical of the widespread push that work from home is great and fantastic in the way of the future, only because some of the very companies who are saying it were five years ago building elaborate offices under the theory that people worked better when they were together and could have informal collaboration. And I don't get how we could have decided all of that was wrong so quickly. But I think a lot of the a lot of the environment of the future depends on our ability to get the real economy working again, not the financialized economy, but the real economy. And I hope we've learned, speaking of your work on resilience, I hope we've learned some lessons about how the insatiable quest for more profits is not always the right answer because there can be a huge cost to that in terms of lack of resilience, resiliency and that we think about what we have to do to make sure there's manufacturing in America and real jobs, not just financial services jobs. I don't know. We're not a country that has done very well at learning our lessons, at least not recently. Maybe never. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about and why? So my book is taking up an enormous amount of my time and I am pretty passionate about it. I find it, it's it, to me, 
what we're, and I'm writing the book with my longtime collaborator, Joe Nocera, with whom I wrote All the Devils Are Here. And what we're trying to do is look at how the pandemic exposed and exacerbated some of the flaws in capitalism itself. And that's a topic that both because of the podcast I do with Luigi Zangala's Capitalism is near and dear to my heart. I think I grew up at least with this belief that capitalism was the only way and that it worked for everything and the free market, you know, was what ruled. And I think I'm I'm starting to question that a little bit. And so, or a lot, and I've been questioning that for a better, for the last decade. And so being able to think of things through that lens is really intellectually interesting to, to me. I love doing my podcast with Luigi. I get exposure to a whole bunch of ideas that I never wouldn't have thought about otherwise, um, just for lack of time. But when you have to do a podcast, as you know, you have to actually figure out what you're going to talk about. And it makes you think about things that you wouldn't otherwise have thought about. And I think for me, new ideas and exploring ideas is is what I've always been passionate about. So I'm lucky that I have several venues in my work that allow me to do that. And then in life, I have young children. So whether that's a passion project or something else, I don't know, but it certainly is a time-consuming one. By the way, as a side to listeners of this podcast, let me just note that the podcast that Bethany and Professor Zingali's host, it's titled Capital Isn't, is great. It is an extensive and nuanced look at the issues around their economic system. And you should go ahead and listen and I'm sure you'll subscribe afterwards. Let me end with a couple of quick questions. How do you relax? Huh, that's a good question. <laughs> by, by which I mean, I wish I had a better way of doing it. No, seriously, I have... Uh, I've had a yoga practice for, oh my goodness, 25 years. And I think while it's not perfect, it doesn't guarantee me relaxation. I'm sure it helps enormously. I have a lot of friends and I love spending time with my friends. I love a good glass of wine or two. And that's that's definitely a wonderful part of my life. I have dogs and I think that animals add a lot of joy to, to life. And I love books. I love books of all kinds. And so that's, I, I can always be pretty happy if I have time alone and a comfortable place to sit in a book. So what are you reading right now? Because my book is so overwhelming. One of my, one of my secrets is that, um, not really a secret, but I was a total nerd as a kid. So I, I grew up without a TV set. My parents never had one in the house and still don't. And so I read science fiction and fantasy like like you wouldn't believe. And I actually have circled back as light reading to some of the fantasy books I used to read as a kid. There's an author named Terry Brooks who wrote a series called Sword of Shannara as well as a bunch of other series. And I'm rereading some of Terry Brooks's work. And I have to ask the question based on your previous answer. What sort of wine do you like? I'll give you, I'll give you two choices, one with food and one just separately sitting alone with someone having a drink. What, what am I enjoying the most? I've been enjoying Rieslings, really dry Rieslings. I, I think are delicious with or without food. On the on the red side, I enjoy a lot of Italian reds. I like Barolos and I like Chiantis. Do you listen to music while you work? I can't. And it is a bummer to me because I would love to have beautiful classical music on in the background when I worked. I can work with a lot of chaos and I actually sort of enjoy working with chaos in the background, but it has to be chaos that I can tune out. And the problem is I like music too much. So part of my brain is going to be listening to the music and then I can't work. 
So I wish I had a, a more aesthetically appealing work environment than I do, but actually the way in which I work the best and get the most writing done is if I'm on a long flight in a cramped middle seat and coach, and I have literally nothing to do, but sit there and there's no Wi-Fi, and I have literally nothing to do, but sit there with my laptop in front of me. I'm super productive. <laughs> so for all these people who invest all this time in their writing space and their music and the art on their walls and the aesthetics of this beautiful room. Oh God, I wish I were one of them that would make what I do so much more aesthetically appealing, but, but no. <laughs> so you are the only person I know who likes cramped middle seats. So we'll, I didn't we'll, say I liked them. They allow me to get work done. <laughs> so if you could be on in one right now, going to vacation, where would, where would it be? You know, it's sort of an unfair question because I've been working on this book so much that honestly, I would go anywhere. I was thinking about this and trying to figure out where I would want to go. And it could be anywhere where I just didn't have to work. I just actually wouldn't really care. <laughs> it could be anywhere. I have this fantasy. I'd started, I've started to surf a little bit. And so I suppose if I could go anywhere, if the world were wide open to me, I might go to Sayulita in Mexico and go to a surf camp there. Last question. If you were granted magical powers to whisper into every American's ear, or perhaps make them read whatever you wrote, what's the one fact or belief you would tell them? Oh, boy, do I have to stick with one and <laughs> giving me control over the world? One I would say is to, to understand the economic world, understand the financial world, because it will matter to you. But I guess I want to, I guess more importantly, I want to come back to something that I had said originally, which is figure out how to be honest with yourself about what you do and don't understand. It doesn't matter. Sometimes we all have shortcuts and sometimes we can, we, we pretend to understand things we don't understand. And sometimes that's fine. You don't have to be intellectually honest with yourself in every single situation, but you want to have a mechanism or an ability to force yourself to see when you don't really get something. Great advice. Thank you. We've been talking to Bethany McLean, contributing editor for Vanity Fair. And as you've just heard, Bethany is not only one of the best business journalists in America, but a really good storyteller and very thoughtful. She managed to combine those skills for the benefit of her readers and podcast listeners. Thank you so much, Bethany. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcast, where we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.